Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Allow me to digress for just a tiny second and invoke the memory of Ken Pruitt, who used to be a wonderful anchor here on Bloomberg Radio. He used to distinguish between the modern economy and the older economy by talking about things that you can pull out of the ground in terms of what companies are doing. Well, Sarah Ponzak, who joins me in studio now, has a version of that idea in a fantastic story today where she talks about the epic S&P 500 rally being powered by assets you can't see or touch. Sarah, give us a little rundown of what goes on there. Well, thank you very much, Bonnie. The idea behind this is really that all year long, we constantly hear about tech outperforming, tech outperformance. And the reality is that COVID-19, sure, it has sped this up, but this has been a trend for a very long time. And in speaking with professors, researchers, economists, one thing that you can really trace this back to is the difference between intangible assets and tangible assets. So intangible assets being those things that you cannot see, you cannot touch. Think of them as a brand name, like the iPhone, for example, or data collected on people, algorithms, software. Uh, Even you can think about it in the sense of a vaccine being created, all the R&D that does go into that. It's all considered intangible, and it's not recorded on a company's balance sheet. So Aon and Ponemon Institute, they put out a report back in 2018. It was recently cited by Bank of America, by Carlyle. This has really become a topic of conversation. And what they found, the way that they did this, was they took total S&P 500 market cap, and they subtracted subtracted out what's called tangible book value. Then they said everything else, well, that's due to intangible assets, which represented 84% of the S&P 500. Now, there are some discrepancies here about how you can actually go about calculating this, and it's really difficult because it's so touchy-feely and accounting measures really aren't that great surrounding this. But yes, you have to take into account that what we see in the length of market cap and that gap is also due to projected earnings from both tangible and intangible assets. But the reality is that growth in intangible assets has just been astronomical over the past two decades, over the past decade in particular, and now sped up by COVID-19. And that has extreme implications for the economy and the labor market too. And of course, how you value these assets is what's important or how investors value them, I should say. Some of these are just brands. Some of them, as you say, are you know intellectual property and so on. Some of them produce revenue. Others absolutely don't. Right. There are many implications of this. Often spoken about is what this means for value investing. There is a large question about if this is the reason why value seems to be quote unquote dead, why value hasn't been able to outperform. Is it the reality that value investors are missing this key input of tangible assets. Bank of America, for example, had a recent report on this and they created their value intangibles basket where they incorporated intangibles into value investing and they got much better returns. There's also a value ETF, for example, that holds Amazon. And the reason that it holds Amazon is because they do take into account intangible value. But when you think about the macroeconomic effects of this and the macroeconomic implications, when you think about a company with a lot of intangible assets, for example, a software company, There's a lot of R&D, research and development that goes into this, but once the software is created or once a vaccine is created, for example, they have immense scale and you don't need too many people 
working to keep that scale growing, to keep uh, software being issued uh, to many different people, to many different companies, for example. Same with a vaccine, having it administered around the world. So what people wonder and what the proof has shown is that aside from the growth of intangible assets, alongside it, I should say, we've also seen slower labor market recoveries. Because if you think in the olden days, if you think with oil wells and factories, you needed a lot of people to really power these tangible assets. Well, with intangible assets, the idea is that you don't need that much growth in employment. You don't need that many people. So people are starting to think about and really wonder about what this means for the future of the economy. One interesting area is brand names, as you said, and yesterday I was speaking with somebody who owns many REITs or who's the CEO of a REIT company, and he talked about how they've undone some deals they had with Marriott or IHS, for example. And you have to wonder, you know, he talked about 159 hotel brands that they used to work with, and now they're really consolidating that and going with their own hotel brands like Sonesta. You have to wonder, will some of these brands just go away or decrease significantly in value? Well, you have to wonder that. And when you think about a brand, you have to think about the emotions uh, that comes with it. Also, just how recognizable it is to a majority of people. When I was working on this story, one example that came up, for example, was the likes of Band-Aid, for example. Band-Aid is a brand, but when we talk about using Band-Aids, I mean, I'll go ahead and say the name, you talk about using Band-Aids. So that is such value that is added to the company that creates Band-Aid, for example. You think about the likes of Apple and its iPhone. When people talk about phones, a lot of people will just offhandly use iPhone because such a large proportion of the population uses it. So when you think about the value of a company, brand names are so important. And the ideas, the emotion that comes with it, another one that comes to mind is Disney. Disney has such a great brand value that comes with it, even though it's a company that does have a high amount of tangible assets you also have to think about the brand too. Sarah, there's so much more we could talk about in this story, but we do have to leave it there for now. Sarah Ponzek is our cross-asset reporter here at Bloomberg. And if you have a chance, do have a read through this story. It really is just a fun story, but also extraordinary, illustrative, and also educational. Epic S&P 500 rally is powered by assets you can't see or touch. That's Sarah Ponzak. Time for a conversation now about Monopoly. And I'm not talking the board game, I'm talking Google, which our next guest says should learn from Microsoft's tough lesson. Jono Sarah joins us now, Bloomberg Opinion columnist. What was the tough lesson that Microsoft learned, Joe, that Google is about to learn, according to you? <laughs> you fight the federal government at your peril. Uh, let's start there. Um, you know, the the... When you look at the complaint that the Justice Department filed against Google, it is uncannily similar to the complaint the Justice Department filed 22 years ago against Microsoft. Microsoft was accused of using its you know, operating system monopoly to squash um, a competitor, Netscape, that had a browser that was competing with, uh, with the Microsoft browser, Internet Explorer. Um, uh, Google is being accused of basically um, uh, going to going to Apple and other companies and basically saying we want to be the pre we want to be the default search engine. We'll pay you to put our search engine, you know, embedded in your in your devices and keep everybody else out. Uh, it's very very similar, and you know Microsoft lost that case. 
And uh, even though antitrust has um, gotten a little more laissez-faire since then, uh, I think Google's in a heap of trouble. Well, there have been 22 years in the meantime. Is there anything in case law or anything in precedent that Google might be able to learn from and use to its advantage? Well, the, the main thing that they will argue about is uh, how to define the market. So if the, if the market is defined purely as the search engine market, then I think Google's going to have real problems defending its position. But if they can persuade the judge to make the market, um, you know, Internet platforms or something that's broader and wider than simply uh, search, then I think they've got a pretty good shot. I think a lot – so it's a, it's a technical term, but it's super important in the antitrust uh, is how do you define the market – uh, and, and if you define it one way, it can, you know, then you're a monopolist. If you define it another way, then maybe you're not. They will have teams and teams of lawyers, Joe. I, I mean, how will this play out? I mean, will it be a public spectacle? Will we be able to see a lot of drama, a lot of theater? Um, well, in the past, Google has uh, wound up usually settling uh, with gov various governments uh, or in Europe paid, uh, paid large fines. So the real question is, will it get to the trial stage? If it does get to the trial stage, I think it's quite likely that it will be, um, you know, one of those uh, high-profile rock and roll, you know, trials with lots of fireworks and, you know, inflammatory emails and, you know, so on and so forth. Um, I'm sure one thing that they learned from the trial is uh, not to act the way Bill Gates acted during his deposition, which was devastating for Microsoft, as you recall. He was uh, uh, his his answers were he he, he 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 barely seemed to know you know what the word the meant, and uh, when that was played in the courthouse, it did not help Microsoft at all. Joe. You know, Google is going to face this first, but it's clear that some of the other major tech companies are going to face this as well. Is there anything to suggest that one company might prevail over some of the others or that, that companies will take a different tack when dealing with this? Well, uh, each company is going to have a different issue, you know, and that's what makes this so hard. So, you know, Facebook, you know, is, is, is the 800-pound is the gorilla uh, in social media, um, and if the government went after them, they would probably try to break them up and, and, and you know, uh, separate them from Instagram and WhatsApp, which, which they both uh, own. Amazon is a platform company that is being accused of using data from uh, its, its own customers, companies that sell on Amazon, to make their own products to compete with these other companies. And uh, so that's what they'll be sued over. Um, and Apple, if the government goes after them, it'll be because of the way they uh, enforce the rules and, and handle their own, um, the App Store, the, 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 the propriety of the App Store. So each case is going to be different. They're all antitrust cases, but, but the, the emphasis in each case is going to be quite different. And it's really hard to know at this point uh, which of the cases are the stronger for the Justice Department and which ones are the weaker. I think the other thing that's going to happen, though, don't forget, there's also Congress. And so if the Democrats take the Senate and um, the White House, uh, you're almost surely going to see laws being written and passed that um, 
that outlaw some of the practices these tech companies have been doing uh, so that there's no, there's no ambiguity about, about whether they violate the law or not. They're just going to say, this is against the law. You cannot do this, Amazon, or you cannot do this, Facebook. It's so fascinating. I'm also curious as to whether a change in administration, should we get one? And that's absolutely not, not determined yet. But if we get one, does it make a difference in this, what's going to be a years-long case? I don't think it does. Um, this, this case was clearly put together by the um, career professionals at the Justice Department. They're not going to go anywhere. Um, the Democrats, as I wrote in another column recently, are really um, uh, geared up to go after these big tech companies on antitrust grounds. And um, the idea that uh, a Biden administration would back away from this lawsuit is almost inconceivable. If anything, they will add additional charges uh, that are not currently contained in, in, the, in, in, the, in the complaint right now. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. There's also the question of, of how the DOJ is going to be staffed up and so on, Joe, but you think these things just carry on sort of seamlessly transition or no? Well, seamlessly is probably an overstatement. <laughs> I mean, don't forget, don't forget AT the AT&T deal uh, with Time Warner was just about locked up when Macon Del Rahim became the antitrust chief of the Justice Department under, under, um, uh, under President Trump, and he immediately reversed course on it, with much to the dismay of the career professionals. But in this particular case, I think the career professionals and whoever hit their superiors turn out to be are going to be, al- are going to be aligned on this case. Joe, it's always so fascinating to speak to you. Just on a separate note, before we let you go, can I ask you what you think is going to happen tomorrow night, debate night? You can ask me, but I don't know. <laughs> That's a fair enough answer. It's, uh, it's not fair to put an opinion columnist on the spot like that. Joe, thank you. Joe Nacera is a Bloomberg opinion columnist covering business, we should say. And of course, uh, do check out, if you haven't heard it, his project, the Bloomberg Wondery project, The Shrink Next Door, up for all sorts of prizes and uh, really just a fascinating listen as well. So, Joe, thanks for joining. Today's column is that Google should learn from Microsoft's tough lesson and well worth a read for anybody out there. Let's get back to the markets now. A very interesting conversation coming up with Anderson Capital Management's Peter Anderson, who's located in Boston and manages something called the Weather Mark Fund. It's a credit-driven, concentrated, low-turnover stock portfolio that apparently incorporates a truly different esoteric stock selection process. So, Peter, welcome and give us just a little hint of what this esoteric stock selection process might be. Well, good morning, Vani. Uh, yes, so I come from a fixed income background and an equity background, and uh, not many people have that combination. Usually you stay in one swim lane for your profession, but I switched over to equities, and I found it very convenient and helpful, frankly, to borrow from the fixed income marketplace the different tools they use and apply that to equity analysis. So what I have is a current portfolio of 15 stocks, but they are derived mainly by looking at dislocations between how the bond market might have an opinion on a company versus how an equity market would have an opinion on the same company. So what has it led you to put into your portfolio in the last six months, and have you changed much? 
Uh, you know, my turnover is very low, relatively speaking. You know, there are a lot of competitors out there, mutual funds would have over 100% turnover, but mine is only about 25 to 30%. So that's an indirect way of saying that my turn, my new stock selection is pretty slow. At most, I'll pick maybe one or two stocks a year. And uh, I'm hoping that's a sign of my conviction on the holdings that I currently have uh, in terms of my outlook for their market appreciation. Okay. How specific can you get when you talk to us about what's actually in your portfolio? Because last year, for example, you had a 40% return on an 18-stock portfolio. Yes, yes, and I, I'm uh, delighted to talk to you about that. And I wanted to also tie that in to, you know, what the, my current assessment is of where we are. I think it's extremely difficult right now. You know, COVID has just kind of dropped a bomb on all the standard metrics that either economists use or equity analysts use. I think they're having a very, very hard time formulating oh, what is going to happen, say, within the next three months. So I don't take a approach like that. This approach takes a longer view, and I try to simplify uh, supply-demand and try to get a, a clearer sense of what stocks out there will endure and indeed appreciate, regardless of what happens in the White House, how long the virus lasts, or whether or not we ha- our hopes for the vaccine are dashed. So with that in mind, some enduring themes are, believe it or not, pet care. That's the most recent uh, additions I've had in the portfolio, and I have a theme of pet care, a uh, sub-theme, if you will, of three stocks in there, and I can explicitly tell you what they are. They're Trupanion, Fresh Pet, and Zoetis. Each one has a very specific uh, place in the pet care of this nation, at least. We own over 100 million cats and dogs out there, and I've right reasoned that no matter what happens, we treat our pets <laughs> equal to Anna, to uh, family members in, in a family. So Trupanion is the only publicly traded stock that provides health care insurance for pets, and their market penetration is only 1% of the entire hundred million animals out there. So just think of that. If it doubles its market share, it's only up 2% in market share, but it certainly would double its revenues. And Fresh Pet is gourmet food for pets, Mm -hmm. and Zoetis provides the medication, the prescription medication, that once you bring your pet to uh, a doctor, a veterinarian, you will usually get a prescription for medication, and most likely Zoetis is the manufacturer of that. So this is a long-term perspective. Uh, From now through the end of the year, I think that there will be incredible volatility, but who can predict who's going to win, when the virus will end, when the vaccines will come out, but I think these stocks have an enduring quality. Are any of your holdings at all dependent on more stimulus coming? You know, I try to stay away from all of that I mean, because when you think about it, pets are definitely, you know, something that costs some money. You know, you just said it yourself, right? So you're you're essentially trying to gather the extra pennies that people have. And in this case, it's through their pets. But a lot of people who have pets that, you know, don't get extra stimulus will not be able to get their pet that extra operation or that medicine. Yes, that's a possibility, but I would also say that if that's the case, it's almost like saying you wouldn't be, be able to provide for your own family member. So I think there is a strong commitment, and I would say almost an inelastic demand for pet care uh, in this country at least. The, the way um, the demographics read and all the latest polling of pet um, owners 
say that this is top on their list next to a family member to spend. So I think you'd really have to erode. There's a lot of inelastic demand elements out there that I try to avoid. Uh, and I do think that these stocks, for instance, will be uh, unaffected by a stimulus as some other sectors, such as data security and data storage. Those are other two, two other themes that I play in the portfolio that I think also have enduring qualities. Interesting. All right, Peter, thank you. Some wonderful uh, things to think about there. Peter Anderson is founder of Anderson Capital Management, talking to us there about some pet care stocks and then also data storage. And of course, we know storage of all kinds has been pretty popular this pandemic. A lot of people transferring their literal physical buildings into physical storage in inner cities as well. So that's another theme that we can look at another day. Let's get now to our next guest who keeps an eye on emerging markets, but also so much more than that. Damien Sassauer is just an absolute genius when it comes to watching the markets. He's chief emerging markets credit strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. But I know that in his spare time, he does a lot more than that, such as looking at frontier markets. And Damien, if you don't mind me sort of jumping you with a question, we haven't really spent any time on on Nigeria or on any of the problems that have been having, that we've been seeing on the periphery. Have you looked at any of the frontier markets that are uh, that are suffering right now and and where is experiencing the most trouble so it's interesting actually that you bring that up Vani. and by the way i'm blushing thank you for the uh, introduction so you know the reality is in nigeria you know you've had some protests nigeria is kind of a closed market there's a big dislocation between the naira which is its local currency and and the black market rate so you know i mean you know it's not really an investor's market from a u.s dollar you know investor perspective but you can get some really high carry in a lot of frontier markets, for, for example, Egypt and Uruguay and Ghana. You know, you've got double-digit yields in all of those economies. Um, and, you know, you know, you can get that, albeit with increased currency risk. So I think that's the real risk here. But my goodness, the move in the dollar is definitely catching people's attentions. And, you know, I can see a lot of people putting more money to work in the front, along the frontier in emerging markets. Right. So net-net, is it better for these markets when that happens? Or is it, is it a disaster? Do they need to run to the IMF and, and run to any program that, that will host them? Well, it certainly depends, right? I mean, certainly the IMF is there for, you know, real troubled economies. I mean, we saw what they're doing with, with in places like Argentina, Ukraine, you know, even Ecuador. But, you know, when you're looking at the frontier, you know, and, and, and some of the markets I just mentioned, I wouldn't say stable is the right word to, ca- to, to characterize them, but certainly more stable than, than, than the former. So, you know, Egypt's one place where you can carry really, really well in the short end. You can get double-digit yields there. But again, you know, those economies are subject to real volatile moves in their local currencies relative to the dollar. So, you know, for example, if we see, you know, a a Trump victory and the dollar rallies off the back of that, all bets are off, right? So, you know, you have to be very selective. And most people use that exposure as sort of a a satellite within their core emerging market portfolio. So it's really more of a tail risk hedge or like what I like to call a free call option. We like to call that a free call option as well, of course. Damien, talk to us about the some of the things that did get resolved this week in terms of some of the Latin American countries and the South American countries. We saw uh, Argentina, for example, take a big step, uh, Bolivia too. Yeah, 
No, absolutely. So, you know, Bolivia has obviously pivoted more toward the socialist bent. Um, you know, look, what's interesting is, you know, if you just want to just kind of think about Latin America, Latin America is really underperformed. Um, I'm talking local Latin America, FX, relative to the broader emerging market universe. And, you know, if we do see, you know, the U.S. equity market reopening, you know, if we do see a steeper U.S. Treasury yield curve, if we see the election risk subside and, you know, vaccine sentiments improve, Latin America for FX is going to is going to rally off the back of this. I mean, so, you know, for me, I'm actually looking at a basket of Latin American currencies, for example, Brazil, Mexico, Chile, Colombia, you know, as sort of a way of playing for, you know, um, you know, uh, good news after the election. Right. And so um, so that's one thing that, you know, we think a lot of investors should take a long, hard, good, a long look at here in the current environment. Well, what are valuations like? I mean, what's priced in? Are people already sort of getting involved? Is it already too late? No, no. Well, Latin America is one that's really lagged the broader complex, so it's one that we like. I mean, look, Brazil. Look, Brazil has its issues, but in my opinion, it's going to receive some tactical relief, primarily because short positioning remains elevated, the macro risks are abating, and quite frankly, the budget discussions are going to be pushed out till after the November municipal election. So you could have a two to three month window here where the real really regains a lot of the lost ground. I mean, the real is off 28% to the dollar year to date, Bonnie. So, you know, that would be one. Mexico's another. You know, Mexico's now testing that 21 level, that key 21 level in the currency. And, you know, if, if it breaks below that, you know, we can easily see it go down to 2019, 18 to levels we saw pre-pandemic. And so, you know, again, these are currencies are ways to kind of more liquid, cheaper ways to play for a U.S. equity market reopening or sort of a recovery basket, so to speak, because as we know, a lot of value stocks here in the U.S. are still quite pricey. Right. And of course, it all depends on, you know, whether we get back to trade discussions and how that works out as well and, and immigration policy and so on. So really, you know, the change that might occur with this election could have a big influence on valuations, no? Well, it already is. I mean, just look at the China yuan. I mean, we're at the strongest level. I think we're at $664 yuan now. I mean, that's the strongest level we've seen since July of 2018. And look, you know, I've long been an advocate of receiving in China. Um, the, the, the People's Bank of China wants a stable, a firm currency to attract foreign inflows. It's maintaining domestic confidence. And look, it's the only central bank in Asia to embark on FX intervention where they're actually selling dollars in the last year through August. So, you know, that's a, that, it, you know it's, it's actually coming out of the... Uh, the pandemic's much stronger than its peers, and it's one area that we like to look at. But, you know, there is beneath the surface some fiscal vulnerability. I mean, we put out a deck just this morning, Vani, talking about EM external debt ratios, which are rising across the whole of emerging markets. I mean, full-year hard currency debt issuance from emerging markets is on track to eclipse $750 billion this year. The former high was in 2017, only $471 billion. So they are levering up, and that is certainly a risk going forward. Yeah, for sure. Damien, you mentioned, you know, 664 on the offshore yuan. This has been creeping lower. I mean, it was around 670 for a long time. And then there was a big range between the offshore and the onshore that's now narrowed. What's going on with the Chinese currency? Well, I think the reason we saw the, 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 the onshore offshore basis, you know, widen out had more to do with the fact that, you know, China was on vacation for eight days. But, mm. you know, now that it's kind, of, it's kind of subsided, you know, for me, the best way to express a China view, if you're bullish on China, is through uh, the short end of the curve, right? I mean, look, everyone's talking about receiving in the belly and China government bonds, the three and five-year tenors. But, you know, for me, I mean, you can get, you know, 
one to 200 basis points above treasuries just by carrying on a one-year or less basis, right? So using FX forwards to not only take advantage of a strengthening currency relative to the U.S. dollar and also a very large pickup over treasuries is a really nice, it's a really nice way to play this market into your end, in my opinion. Damien, really fascinating speaking with you always. Uh, you come and you, you see, you know, a matrix when you look at markets and it's just really, it's really great. And of course, you have all of the um, history as well. So it uh, rings bells, I'm sure, for you to other eras and, eras and other years. Damien Sassauer joining us there. He is Chief Emerging Markets Credit Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.